From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Some people say once you get the water in your blood, you can't get it out. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and sonic flotsam and jetsam we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Captain Stewart, how's the wind? North Northeast and steady. I'll make the most of it. I do not wish to linger on this Cape Verde ground. Aye, aye, sir. Ready the cannon! The ship is a vessel built to navigate the Earth's most unpredictable terrain. It is a commanding force, slicing and pushing and bullying its way through the unforgiving water. Ships transport us, supply us, and single-handedly breathe life into sandy islands and unknown territories. But no matter how giant and spectacular a ship seems, on the ocean she's dwarfed, vulnerable in the vast blue expanse. Today on ReSound, Ship Shape. Will Bob from the biggest maritime disaster that you never heard of to a man who saved thousands of shipboard lives with a deceptively simple design? Boy, oh boy, stay with us. For as long as there have been ships, there have been shipping disasters. And for as long as there have been shipping disasters, we have been utterly fascinated by them. The Titanic, the Lusitania, the list goes on. But buried in the history books was a far bigger disaster, one that killed more people than the Titanic and the Lusitania combined. And chances are, you've never heard of it. Thanks to Winston Churchill. But more on that in the upcoming story. Now, the last remaining survivors and their children tell the true story of the fated ship in The Sinking of the Lancastria, reported by BBC special correspondent Alan Little. The waters of the Western Channel are a briny sea green today, and we've joined a flotilla of little boats and ships the battleship grey of a French naval corvette, a minesweeper ahead of us, and all around the sea dotted with little boats from the French Coast Guard, the French lifeboat service, and one or two fishing vessels. And we've stopped at a place here marked by a little red boy bobbing on the surface of the sea, and 75 feet below us lies the wreck of the troopship Lancastria. It was bombed and sunk on the 17th of June, 1940, 70 years ago today by a German dive bomber during the evacuation of British troops from France. And with us on the boat here are relatives of some of those who died and survived, and indeed some of the survivors themselves who've come back 70 years on to lay reeds on the surface of the water. 4,000 or more men who lost their lives that day still lie entombed in the hold of the ship beneath us. It was Britain's worst ever maritime disaster more people died that day than on the Lusitania and the Titanic put together. And yet it is almost completely unknown. It couldn't have happened on a worse day. It was the day that France capitulated in the face of Germany's terrifyingly quick advance. 
Paris had fallen and tank divisions were sweeping westwards. Some of the tanks advanced so fast that they ran out of petrol. The French army, which had been regarded as enormously powerful, completely collapsed, completely caved in. The French air force played very little part, and this was a military collapse, but it was also a collapse of national morale. Jonathan Fenby is a journalist and author of a book about the loss of the Lancastria. The men who found their way onto that ship were part of the British Expeditionary Force, left in France after Dunkirk. They've been all but written out of the official history. I came across a report to the War Cabinet at the beginning of June which said the British Expeditionary Force had all been evacuated successfully except for a few stragglers. In fact, there were about 100,000 stragglers left behind. These weren't frontline troops. These were support troops. They were people working in the NAFI and the Pay Corps. They were engineers, all those kind of people who keep an army going. And they were left behind. And they were in camps all over northern and western France and really were abandoned. They had no idea what was happening. Men such as Flight Lieutenant Albert Hill, who was with Maintenance RAF. His unpublished account of what happened on the Lancastria, written in some old order books from the pub he kept after the war, was given to us by his son, Des. He was with a group retrieving aircraft that were damaged, shot down, whatever. He said in his notes that at first they didn't realise they were retreating. And then all of a sudden he said that we were running for the sea. That was his actual words. Some of the men hadn't realised it yet. They waved and laughed as we passed the refugees. They carried their possessions in bundles wrapped in sheets, in wheelbarrows, baskets, even in dustbins. Many of them had their animals following too. It looked to us that all of France was going away. Then I noticed a small group of people standing by the roadside. They were looking at a pram. We were going very slowly now, and in the pram I could see a baby. He'd been shot. The German planes had been there before us. And I remember thinking, God, it'll be us next. The thing we remembered was the French, by the sides of the roads and through the villages we passed through, they were looking at us with a blank, expressions, as if they didn't understand what was going on, and if they did, they couldn't quite believe it. Jack Lumsden was a major in the Royal Ordnance Corps. His group was headed, with thousands of others, for the port of Saint-Nazaire, at the mouth of the Loire River. On June 16th, his group slept rough on the quayside, waiting to transfer to one of the flotilla of 30 troop ships, the largest of which was the converted Cunard liner, the Lancastria. During the night, there were frequent flights over the area by enemy aircraft, obviously on reconnaissance to find out what was happening. Also waiting to board that morning was James Cowan of the RAF Advanced Air Striking Force, one of the few remaining survivors of the tragedy. Saw so the Lancaster out there, out at sea. It was 7 o'clock in the morning, sunny morning, and the sun was reflecting off the ship. And he looked white, and I thought to myself, what a target, what an easy target. And a little boat took you out to the Lancaster? Yes, a small boat took it out, yeah. This was done on the basis of first to arrive at the port were first to embark. That meant that the RAF contingent were first on board the Lancaster and took the lower accommodation. We went four decks down, which was the hold, I suppose, in the old days. 
How did you feel when you got four decks down? I felt apprehensive. All the rest of the RAF bedded down there with these mattresses. So I went up to the top deck. That saved your that, life? That's where I stayed all day. When air raids come, I don't like to be in undercover. I like to be up and see what's going on. Charles Napier, the last living Scottish survivor, had been with the Royal Engineers building an airfield. By the time he got aboard in the afternoon, the ship was packed to the gunnels. I was lying on the top deck and uh, a man came out. He didn't see me, I don't think. And anyway, I said, you're looking awful worried. And he says, well, I am very worried. He said, I'm the purser. He said, there's between eight and 9,000 people on this ship. And there's only life-saving equipment for about two and a half thousand. And when the second alert occurred, we were eating our meal. And during the alerts, we were unable to get up to the upper deck because the watertight doors were closed. But I told my companions that on the next alert, we must make a move to get up on deck to avoid being trapped in the saloon. The ship had one four-inch gun and a few Bren guns the soldiers had brought on board. It wasn't really equipped for war. In the Italianate dining saloon, there were white tablecloths, gleaming cutlery, and what the men referred to as posh food, including minute steak maitre d'hôtel and boiled knuckle of veal with bacon and parsley sauce. Sitting at one of the tables were the Tillia family, British civilians who worked for ferry aviation in Belgium and fled south. Their daughter Jacqueline was two years old and enjoying the attention of the uniformed stewards. It was a luxury cruise liner. The chef was making bread. They kept saying, you've got to feed all these that are coming on now because they're hungry. Well, it's whilst we were down there that the bomb hit. The enemy was making straight for us and the bomb doors were open. He couldn't miss. God almighty, I thought, it was just a sitting duck. I looked up at the enemy plane again and for a moment or two nothing happened. A ridiculous thought came to me, perhaps he wasn't going to. Then two bombs came out together and they both hit the Lancaster at the same time. When there were two explosions and the ship shuddered and immediately listed to starboard. In fact, there were four bombs in all. Three blew up in the holds, killing 800 RAF men. Inside the ship, there was chaos and panic. There were engulfing clouds of black smoke. Burst pipes sprayed scalding water over men fighting their way to staircases, the largest of which collapsed under the weight. Men, blinded and bleeding from the blast, stumbled, searching for a way onto the deck. One bomb went down the funnel right through the boat. But when the bombs went down, I got hit just below the ear and I passed out. All the lights went down. There was smoke everywhere. I noticed that the smoke was swirling out onto the deck through the doorway that I'd come in. So I dashed for that. Donald Draycott was an RAF ground crewman from Derbyshire. The deck was a scene of confusion. Charles Napier was unconscious for five minutes or so, but recovered enough to try to save himself. When I came to, I got up and walked across to the starboard side and climbed into a boat. 
there was two boats down nearly at the waterline, but they were sitting on the hull of the ship. The ship had listed. He couldn't get the boats done. There was nowhere to go. And what were the Tilliers to do, travelling with a child of two? Mother said she just picked me up and ran to the stairs, calling baby here, baby here, which I picked up as a two-year-old, baby here. And they just parted, the soldiers just parted and let us up on deck. And Dad said when we got on deck, they put us in a lifeboat. But it's, it sunk. I don't know if the ropes were wrong, but it just went under. So they just looked at each other and said, what do we do? Swim. Luckily, they were very good swimmers. A party of men were trying to unfasten a huge carly float from the starboard rigging, and there were shouts of, watch out, stand clear. The float had to be launched. The sea was one mass of desperately bobbing heads. As the ship listed, the float began to slide, and there were a number of heads sticking up from the deck below. The poor devils there didn't hear the warnings in time. The Carly float struck their heads and ripped them from their bodies. I saw a row of broken necks still sticking up and gushing blood. The heads had disappeared into the sea. I can remember that people were trying to help by throwing deck chairs and anything to hand into the sea. But I'm sure it did more harm than good because these rained down on the people in the water. I'd crossed to the starboard side and I saw McCarthy. He climbed onto the rails on the deck below me. We were at least 80 feet above the water. He had his great coat on fully buttoned up and his steel helmet fastened under his chin. He was about to jump. Don't jump, McCarthy, I yelled. Don't jump, don't jump. He probably didn't hear me and he jumped feet first. I watched him hit the sea and go under. From that height, with his helmet fastened, he must have broken his neck immediately. The port side was lifting out of the water. I took off my boots and jacket and went down the acutely sloping deck of the port rail and dived in. I swam away from the vessel. I, I could see the German aircraft attacking other vessels and could see the spray from bombs landing in the water. The explosion seemed to go right through your, your bowels. There's no mercy that hit the ship. The ship was sinking and then uh, they even dropped bombs onto the oil on the water, hoping to set fire to the oil. Gilbert Skelton had been hit in the shoulder, though he hadn't realised it. He was a non-swimmer. He jumped from the ship and managed to find a wooden plank to cling to. There was people all around me. Some was drowning, there was no hope for them. Others was struggling to try and swim. Then the aircraft came down. Uh, swooping down and machine gunning us in the water. To me, I cannot visualise how, you know, an attack like that, I even survived that. By that time, I knew that this was real and was no dream. Sergeant Harry Pettit of the Royal Army Service Corps shook hands with his friend Charlie and together they dropped into the sea. And I realised I must have been sucked under by the ship going, it went probably a moment or two after I jumped in, the, the, the last quarter of the ship, and down I went, down, down, and I was convinced then that I was going to die. The pain in my body was terrific, 
My eardrums were shattered. I had pains in all parts of my body. And I thought, oh, quick, quick. I, I can't stand much more. And I felt that I was going to explode with the compression that I was getting until suddenly my body came to a gentle stop. And then suddenly up it came like a cork that's been released underwater. And I hit the surface quite quickly. There was oil all over the water. There was wreckage and mess. There were bodies dead and alive, even bits of bodies. There were chaps who were sort of screaming for help, and there were others who were sort of striking out. One of the memories I have is people all around in the sea, but also things like coconuts floating about, and these turned out to be the heads of drowned people. I tried to go down this rope, I never, ever um, gone and brought down a rope or knew the technique of doing it. So I went so far and then started to slide. And of course, it burned on my hands. And then, and then I dropped onto the casing, you know, the propeller casing. I'd never been in the sea ever before in my life. Given that you couldn't swim, couldn't swim no. how did you stay afloat? I had a life jacket. And I lay on my back and just thrown, kicked, and kicked, literally kicked people. He grabbed all your legs you know, and saved me, saved me, and you know, it is every man for himself. And so uh, people were panicking in the water. Oh yes. So you have to virtually fight your way out of it. James Cowan had two major advantages: an old cork life jacket and a clear head. By contrast, in his account, Albert Hill recalled the scene as he swam close to a crowded lifeboat. I got to about 15 yards from it and I realised it was upside down. There were about 50 men standing or clinging to it. One of them had gone berserk. He was shouting and screaming and running uncontrollably amongst the others who were struggling with him, trying to stop him pitching everyone into the water. I stopped swimming and yelled at the top of my voice, Stop that bloody fool, he'll have you all off. Yet no one could stop him. He'd gone completely crazy and had what seemed an enormous strength. Men were beginning to be thrown into the oily sea. I moved nearer the boat as quickly as I could manage. I took my revolver from its waterproof holster and opened it and shook out the water that penetrated into the chamber and reloaded it. Then I did the only thing I could possibly do. I killed him. I had to do it. I had to. It was either him or 50 others drowned. So I shot him and he fell into the sea. But there was fortitude too. As the men who couldn't swim huddled on what remained of the sinking ship, People remember the singing. There'll always be an England. And the single baritone voice raised above the noise and confusion. Wherever there's a cottage small beside a field of grain, there'll always be an That was when the ship was being hit and she was sinking. But this song was sung. There's a turning wheel, a million marching feet, red, white and blue. What does it mean to you? The Lancastria slipped below the surface at 12 minutes past four in the afternoon. Here in Saint-Nazaire, local people had watched with horror and set about launching boats for the rescue. Jack Lumsden was picked up by a trawler, Albert Hill by two men in a dinghy, 
Charles Napier was saved by another serviceman in a lifeboat. And Gilbert Skelton was taken by small boat to hospital, from where he escaped to Bordeaux, just ahead of the Germans. James Cowan was lucky too. The French water tanker that pulled me out, the crewman saw I was still alive, because most of the people lying there weren't. He brought some red Van Rouge hot. Hot red wine? Yeah, and that pulled me round. <laughs> I was ready to go again. <laughs> <laughs> the Tillier family with baby Jacqueline were in the water for hours. I don't know how they had the will to carry on four hours in the sea with a baby. I think it's help from everybody that was there. They gave Daddy a plank of wood to put me on. One time he had my clothes in his mouth. I don't know. I don't know how they did it. When we got picked up on the Highlander, the sailors there were marvellous. I was unconscious and covered in oil. And the steward said, I can bring her out. And he got two buckets, one hot, one cold, in <laughs> till I started to cry. And that was wonderful. And then he got all the oil off of me and then wrapped me in this sailor's jumper, which I've still got. So although it wasn't a great triumph, it was a catastrophe, there are heroic episodes that came out of it. There are always heroic episodes, aren't there? There are some men who rowed boats out there picking up survivors for about 12 hours, just picking them up and taking them back. The tragedy has entered French folk memory, but not in Britain. En plein cœur de la débâcle, 17 juin 1940. Fut érigé le théâtre de l'affreux drame qui me hante, celui du Lancastria. Soldats et réfugiés. When the surviving servicemen reached home, they were ordered on pain of court martial not to speak about the sinking of the Lancastria. And at the time, no report appeared in the papers. Jonathan Fenby. It was a very bad moment in Britain's history. France was collapsing, Mussolini had entered the war, Hitler and Mussolini were planning further conquest. Végon, the French chief of staff, said, you know, Britain is a chicken whose neck will be wrung shortly by Hitler. And Churchill, as he said afterwards in his memoirs, quite simply thought the newspapers had had enough bad news. So he put a D-notice on it, and it was not lifted until the story seeped out in America some six weeks later. There's a kind of almost pathos about the helpless Lancastria, poorly defended, being attacked by the all-triumphant Germans and being sunk at that moment. And you can almost make a metaphorical link with the condition of Britain. In Edinburgh, they do remember. At the annual service for the Lancastria at St George's Church, there's a good turnout, and at the back of the church, there's a model of the memorial sculpture they're hoping to build at Clyde Bank, where Lancastria was built. And remembrance. Recognition of the tragic moment 70 years ago on the 17th of June 1940. Remembrance of the thousands who lost their lives that disastrous day. This Helping to lead that campaign for recognition and remembrance is Mark Hurst, the archivist for the Lancastria Association of Scotland. 
His grandfather survived after being given a life jacket by Charles Napier. There was a feeling of almost grievance that their sacrifice, the endurance that they went through, had been forgotten, and I think that bore heavily on him. Why? Why do you think it's important for it to be remembered? Why was it important to them that there should be some popular consciousness of it? One of the ironies is that the story of the Lancaster is actually better known outside the UK than it is at home. Perhaps it doesn't fit with the national psyche. I mean, the Lancastria disaster happened between two major events in the war, the so-called miraculous evacuation at Dunkirk and then the Battle of Britain. And it doesn't fit with either the propaganda objectives of the time and certainly, perhaps arguably, doesn't fit today. Perhaps that's just the nature of the way states formally remember events like this. Because it gets in the way of the grand narrative which requires a seamless transition from the Dunkirk evacuations to the few who won the Battle of Britain. You're absolutely right. I mean, how do you alter that narrative once you have uh, dictated it in terms of presentation? Because it, it raises questions then about, well, if you misled us on this, what else are you misleading us on? So today, 70 years after the sinking of the Lancastria, survivors and relatives have come out on this fine, calm day for a service and to lay wreaths on the sea. For many, such as Fiona Simon, chair of the Lancastria Association of Scotland, it's the first time they've been out here. My father, we will never know precisely how he died, but I know he wasn't a strong swimmer, so I presume he drowned. His body was in the water for five weeks until it was washed ashore with many others after a storm. And he's buried in Beaufort-sur-Mer. He still had his army tag on. But that was another unfortunate happening because when the body was found, the number was misread. And when it was sent in, presumably to the Red Cross, the number that was sent belonged to a soldier who was alive and well. And my mother had already had a letter to say that he was missing, presumed dead, from the Lancastria. And then she heard about this, so she continued to hope. And it wasn't until 1943 that she got confirmation of his death. So it was three years, and the stress affected her for the rest of her life. So I've never known my father, and my mother never remarried. It is something that has haunted me all my life. This is something I have needed to do all my life, not just wanted to. As I got older, I had this real need to come where he had been. I will feel at one with it. And it's something my mother was never able to do. So I do it for her as well. The survivors and relatives are wearing the Lancastria Medal, which was commissioned by the Scottish Parliament in 2008. Well, already it has made a difference when the Scottish Government commissioned the medal. That was the first official recognition ever. For his father, Flight Lieutenant Albert Hill, Des Hill has one too. Well, being a ex-service myself and coming from an ex-service family, that's all you've got to remember, people by. The Scottish people thought it was important that the Lancastria should be remembered. A, it was built in Scotland 
and a lot of the people who went down with it were Scottish. And what do you want now from the MOD? We would very much like a fresh look at the designation of the Lancastri as a protected maritime war grave. The previous government rejected uh, claims. We had a 4,000 signature petition which we presented to Downing Street. And whilst the French government, to their credit, has awarded additional protection, we feel that the implementation of British legislation to designate the Lancastrian official war grave would give it the maximum protection that it deserves. And we've taken advice from academics at Plymouth University and other places that have told us that we could uh, secure such a designation. And I think perhaps for political reasons, perhaps for other reasons, officials and ministers have been reluctant to do that in the past. We asked the Ministry of Defence for their response to this, given that as Shadow Minister for Defence, Liam Fox had supported the designation of the wreck site as an official maritime war grave. Their answer was that the Lancastria lies in French territorial waters and that the French have extended their own legal protection of the site, equivalent to anything the British government could provide. Nobody knows how many people died on the Lancastria, certainly 3,000, maybe as many as 6,000. Here, on the 70th anniversary, the survivors and relatives still want their sacrifice formally acknowledged. Something I would like to quote, which I would like our government to think about, and it's a quote from President Roosevelt, who said, A man who is good enough to shed his blood for his country is good enough to be given a square deal afterwards. More than that, no man is entitled to. And no less than that, a man should have. But the victims and the survivors of the Lancastria disaster have never had a square deal. En plein cœur de la débâcle, 17 juin 1940. The Sinking of the Lancastria was produced by Susan Marling and presented by Alan Little. It originally aired on BBC Radio 4 in 2010. Support for ReSound comes from Smoke Barbecue, serving authentic, slow-smoked barbecue and homemade sides all year round. Smoke also caters events of all types, including holiday parties and corporate events. Learn more at smokebarbecue.com. That's S-M-O-Q-U-E-B-B-Q.com. Another shipping forecast issued by the Met Office at 2343 on Saturday the 18th. There are warnings of gales in all areas except Trafalgar. The general synopsis at 1800, low 200 miles south of Iceland, 960, drifting slowly east and filling. In the 1800s, shipping disasters were commonplace. Even without icebergs and bombs to aid their demise, ships regularly sank because of overloading. The problem was so prevalent that a crusading British member of parliament made it his goal to do something about it. His solution was so simple, so ingenious, and so effective that it's still in use today. Here is a cheer for Samuel Plimsoll from Roman Mars. If you look at the outer hull of commercial ships down by the waterline, you might find a painted circle bisected with a long horizontal line. This simple marking is called the load line, or as I prefer, the plimsoll line. And not to oversell it, 
but this elegant graphic design has saved thousands of lives. This is one of my favorite examples of design because what I really like in the world is when you can find a massive problem that definitely needs solving and with some thought you can solve it with something as simple as a circle with a line through it. It's, I just find it amazing. That's what I'd like to do with my career. That's Tristan Cook. And I'm a human factors engineer, so that means that I look at the way that people interact with their environment and figure out how that will affect their behavior. Tristan also curates an outstanding blog called Humans in Design. So anyway, the massive problem that needed solving in the 19th century that Tristan is referring to was the huge number of British ships sinking in the ocean because they were overloaded and in disrepair, sending hundreds of merchant seamen to a watery grave. The problem was so widespread that these vessels became known by another name. Coffin ships? Coffin ships. Now, overloading ships has certainly happened since there have been ships to overload, but it was the introduction of insurance that created the coffin ship. And it's still a colloquial term for ships that are overinsured, so they're worth more money to the person that owns them at the bottom of the ocean than they are afloat. So ship owners would purposefully overload older ships with cargo, thinking that if the ships made it, they hit the jackpot. But if the ships didn't make it, they still made a lot of money on the insurance claim. Early days in insurance, so people weren't quite aware of the idea that by insuring something you're going to change and affect people's behavior. This is called a moral hazard, when people engage in risky behavior because they are not fully accountable for the consequences. You assume that insurance is going to keep everything the same, but it doesn't. When, when something is insured, it changes your behavior, you become more risky, or you have a different incentive to do something. And the unintended consequence of insurance was that ship owners had an incentive to sink their own ships and send hundreds of souls to the bottom of the ocean. The most famous one was one called the SS London. It had 230 something people on board. It was leaving a place, and I'm not kidding, called Gravesend in England, theoretically headed for Melbourne, Australia. But it was overloaded with a whole bunch of railway parts and things like that. And that was in the mid 1800s and, and that, that sank as in a storm like when it tried to turn back towards a port. This is where our hero, British MP Samuel Plimsoll and the Plimsoll line comes in. Just after that happened, a guy called Samuel Plimsoll got elected to the British Parliament and he wanted to pass a bunch of like new shipping safety laws based upon his knowledge of this disaster. But passing these safety laws was not easy for Plimsoll because it just so happens that murderous, regulation-hating, immoral capitalists and their friends sometimes serve as elected officials. A lot of the people in British Parliament owned ships, so they were the, the owners that didn't want extra regulation. So yeah, he had a, actually a fairly large amount of trouble getting it through. It didn't sail through, it had very little support in Parliament. So Plimsoll took his case to the people. Plimsoll wrote a book called Our Seamen, which was really championed the issue, and that went really wide. And eventually, due to widespread public support, the Merchant Shipping Act of 1876 was passed. It required the simple, elegant graphic I described earlier, a circle with a long horizontal line at the center, to be painted on the outside of the hull to show the maximum loading point of the ship. The mark let a third party know plainly and clearly when a vessel was being overloaded and at risk of sinking in rough seas. If you see that horizontal line above the water, you're good. If you don't, well, you could be sunk. It's, it's kind of really pretty looking to look at. That's what drew me to it initially. It's very uh, geometric. 
and some form of the plimsoll line remains on ships to this day. There's just a slight modification so that in different waters or salt water or fresh water or with different sorts of ships, you're allowed to load it to different levels. So there's just a couple of different levels on the outside. Personally, I think it's amazing that, that with, with boats these days that there's all these different safety measures that have been implemented. So there's GPS, the boats drive themselves halfway through everywhere, but when it gets down to it, the thing that is most importantly keeping a boat afloat is still just a circle with a line through it on its hull, just a, just a bit of paint. There have been numerous poems and songs sung about Samuel Plimsoll, but over time, his name has faded, even though his mark on the world lives on. It's, it's actually less known as a Plimsoll line now, and more as a low line, but at the time, it was definitely known as a Plimsoll line. But if I've done my job today, you, dear listener, will only call it a Plimsoll line because it seems like the right and honorable thing. And besides, if there's an opportunity to use an eponym, use the eponym, it's just cooler. Our tars upon the ocean he struggles to defend. Success to Samuel Plimsoll, for he's the sailor's friend. Year for Samuel Plimsoll was produced by Roman Mars for his radio show about design called 99% Invisible. For a link to his website, visit ours at thirdcoastfestival.org. safety regulations and procedures that save the lives of sailors and seamen killed some of their best traditions. Case in point, the sea shanty. As the steam engine ushered in modernization, it ushered out the onboard work songs that helped time go by and ease difficult tasks. But the shanties haven't disappeared altogether, thanks in part to Nightingale Bob Webb. First of all, I was interested in the sea, and also, I was interested in maritime history. So it was a natural follow-up that I should go into the singing and start to try to save and preserve these old songs that were used in those workaday seafaring circumstances. Because it's a dead tradition, and if we don't keep it alive from an historical point of view, it's going to go away. Well, I'm Bob Webb down here in Phippsburg. I'm a folklorist and a folk singer and a writer. And I've made a study of traditional music of the sea now for about the last 30 years. I've been around Cape Horn twice. I've been to the Bering Sea and the coast of Siberia. I've been to Mediterranean, uh, down to Casablanca. I've been, been all over the yard. When you're far at sea, it's a kind of a purity that you can't get on lands. This is very hard to understand nowadays, but you couldn't run a sailing ship in the late 19th century without the shanties. The shanties, at least, were work songs. They were used specifically on board square rig sailing ships to coordinate the labor that had to be done in a day when there was no engines on board and therefore no electrical power. Typically in these old square riggers, you'd have four hours on and then four hours off and then four hours on like that. So you'd be divided into your watch. The mate would come along the lines of the two watches and he'd stare at the men and he'd say, all right, who's the nightingale among you? Which meant which one of you is going to sing the shanties? Way, hey, 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 h
and the girls, they are playing in the clover. Way, ay, 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 I love man. These shanties, which always have a verse and a singing chorus, they coordinate how fast you do the job and how long you do the job and give you something to think about besides the fact you're out in the middle of the ocean risking your life and sweating trying to get this heavy work done. So when they came on board the ship, they weren't really in a very good mood. Most of them had hangovers. They'd been drinking too much the night before. And they were leaving the comfort and the security of the shore in order to go to sea because they were virtually out of money. The combination of all of this plus the very, very difficult labor that was involved in getting a sailing ship out of the harbor was enough to put anybody in a foul mood. And so the songs took on a very doleful sort of a sound, a very laborious sort of a sound. Oh, we set her to sailing out over the bar away over Io, and we pointed her nose to the southern star, and we're bound for the Rio Grande. If you had a strong shantyman who could sing a good song, then you had something to get your mind occupied because you really just as soon jump overboard, swim back to shore. You really didn't want to go. Cool gals, and we're bound for the Rio Grande. When I write songs, I write oftentimes about the undocumentable part of the seafaring tradition. For example, when I wrote Tow Rope Gals, which is my song about a folkloric concept that ran through sea music, that when you were homeward bound in one of these big old square rigged vessels, that the women who were waiting for you on the pierhead, wives and sweethearts and mothers, would all come down there and they would take a hold of an imaginary tow rope and they would start to haul it hand over hand and that tow rope extended to the bow of your ship and they literally pulled you in from sea. It's all the way, all the way, all the way home. It's a wonderfully romantic concept and a really evocative concept and there is not a single sailor song from the 19th century that I'm aware of that specifically deals with this particular topic. We'll sing homeward bound as we get underway for the gals have got hold of our tow rope today. But mostly I like to stick to the traditional songs. When the winds and the waves are in tumult and strife And the fever stalks forth as a foe to man's life No, it was not a glamorous life to go in sailing ships. A lot of this has to do with social conditioning. Captain was God sailors in those days were thought to be kind of a low class. The officers and the men who owned the ships considered them just barely better than animals, and they were treated accordingly. Men could be struck, men could be whipped, absolutely brute force. Believe me, dearest Susan, I will come back again. The old expression was, only a plank between you and eternity. This is the day we make our payday. Dance gals, give me the banjo. Oh, that banjo, that seven-stringy banjo. Dance gals, give me the banjo. Oh, all the way for Campeche Bay. Oh, dance gals, give me the banjo. Oh, all the way and stretch out for your pay. Oh. When you needed a shanty was when you were working in rough weather. The shanty man not only had to compete with the deck noises and the ship's noises, but also the sound of the wind itself. So the shanty man would have to place himself so that his voice would blow down to the men who were working. That banjo, that ping-a-ponga banjo. Dance gals, give me the banjo. There's a real cultural connection between these old seafaring songs and our history. I don't think there's a community that you can go to 
anywhere from one border of Maine to the other along the coast that doesn't have a rich seafaring heritage. Every community on the Maine coast is intimately and completely tied up with the business of going to sea, and that's why I think it's so important for the people of Maine to pay attention to this. But I tell you what, you sing at them. The whole secret is singing at them because nobody ever hears anybody in this country just start to sing a song without having a band, without having an electric guitar, without having anything with them but just their voice. You married and single together will mingle and listen while these few lines I will relate. And once you start to sing, while you have their attention, then you have an opportunity. It's a very brief window, but you have a window to explain what you sang and why it's important. And then you invite them to sing with you. Way, hey, 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 I love man. A Nightingale Among Us was produced by Sam Greenspan at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. Regardless of all the modern conveniences and technological advances, life on a ship in the middle of the water for weeks at a time can be a little difficult and isolating and lonely. Undaunted, radio producer Allison Swaim spent nine days aboard a bulk ore ship, a ship so big it would take a thousand semi-trucks to carry the same load, to bring us this story of life on the water. One thing I learned on the ship was that the work never stops. Doesn't matter if it's day or night. There's always somebody up. There's always something to do. Go time! Right now, we're coming into Meldrum Bay, Ontario, on the north shore of Lake Huron. Straight ahead, there's a limestone quarry. We back up slowly to the dock. As soon as the boat's tied up, the loading rig swings out and starts dumping small gray chunks of limestone into the first cargo hold. All the guys who are working carry radios. On a boat this big, it's the only way they can communicate to keep the whole operation running smoothly. We've all been working together for so long that we know each other's voice. You don't have to ever have to say who you are. It's hard when you come on board and you're new. You, you don't know anybody's voice yet. It gets confusing. <laughs> when I first started and I had a radio, whatever was said on that thing, okie doke, uh, as long as it didn't say Kyle, you know. No need to alert your ears. Kyle's the new guy on board. It's his first season. He found out about the job through a friend. Figured what better way to make money than be out on a boat for a month. You can't spend it. Starting salary averages to about 50 grand a year. It's pretty good money to start out with no training. So Kyle filled out the paperwork and applied for a job with Grand River Navigation Company. Then they called me. They go, okay, you're leaving tomorrow. Company van picked him up in Cleveland and dropped him off 300 miles away in South Chicago at the KCBX coal terminal. I go, this is the boat. I go, holy hell. It's kind of big. It's a huge boat. I mean, 600 feet long. It's like two football fields. And the deck towers like 30 feet above the water. Got to the ladder, climb upon it, you know, hoist your stuff up, go on deck, and then they go, we'll change, you're ready to work. He didn't really know what to expect or what to pack. Like, first off, the boat doesn't have shampoo. Nothing like having your head full of freaking coal dust and you're trying to wash your hair out. Life out here takes some getting used to. This isn't a cruise ship. I mean, they're hauling coal, rocks, salt. 
After we uh, get spotted here, Ken, go ahead and give Kyle a call. Roger. We're pulling into Grand Haven, Michigan now to unload this limestone at a power plant. Kyle swings over, clambers down the ladder into the work boat, rows ashore to help tie up the boat. There's a chain of command on the boat. Kyle's at the bottom of the totem pole. He's a deckhand. I'm usually the one, like, they look around and their battery's beeping and they're like, hey, go get me a battery. Kyle answers to the bosun and the ABs, who answer to the mates, and everybody answers to the captain. ABs and mates work regular shifts, but Kyle works whenever he's needed. I was out from 7 last night to 2 in the morning, then I came out at 6 o'clock. Kyle slept through his first wake-up call this morning, so... You want to tell her, Kyle? Tell her about what happened to you when you don't wake up on time? Yeah, you're two minutes late. They come to your room with a bucket of water and give you a thorough douching, and uh, it definitely wakes you up, along with soaking your bed, your sheets. The crew rotates on a 28-14 schedule. 28 days on the boat, 14 days home, then they're back out for another month. Being away from home, you miss a lot. Kyle just turned 21 yesterday. Yeah, that sucked. He was out here. It's just another day. This job's not for everyone. A lot of guys come out and they just don't get it. <laughs> they, they don't stick around long because they're miserable. That's Ed. So. Ed's been sailing for 10 years. He's got a tattoo of two anchors on his right hand from his time in the Coast Guard. Ed's seen a lot of guys start and quit. One walked off right in the middle of a shift. I was mad because I would just gotten to bed and the first mate walks in. He's like, so-and-so just quit. Time to get back out of bed after I just showered and laid down. Kyle's thought about quitting before. I remember one time, just getting yelled at for cleaning out cargo holds. And... Okay, so the crew has to clean really thoroughly every time they switch cargo to keep from contaminating a load. So somebody has to go down inside the cargo hold. So you had to go down there with the hose. You had to poke with a stick. You had so to... Kyle's down there. It's like a cave. It's dark. There's no air movement down there. It's got safety hunters on. It's not like you have a flat surface to walk on. It's got his hose. You're dragging a hose around and getting soaking wet. He's poking around, trying to get the rocks out of the cracks. And it still wouldn't come out. And then like half of it turned out to be not even like stone. It was just like rust. Meanwhile, the mate's up on deck with his flashlight looking down over the edge. Like you're down there and this person's yelling at you because their job's on the line and you're just getting pissed off because, you know, you're doing the best you can, and you almost want to go in your room and pack your shit up and just, you know, leave, but... But he didn't. Instead? Sat on the swing outside and rocked around, looked at the water, called a few people, and they told me to stick with it, so I did. It's been six months since Kyle came on board. He's made it this far. Probably stick with it till the end of the season, at least, and decide what I want to do next year. Torture will be over soon enough. Kyle's worked all morning. The load's going pretty smooth, so he can take a quick break from the deck to go get lunch. He walks down the hall, past his room, and up the stairs to the galley. The galley is the main common space on the boat. There's the TV, main source of entertainment, chalkboard with today's menu: bratwurst, grilled cheese, chips, fruit salad. What are you guys gonna have? Kyle walks up to the counter so Deb can take his order. Kyle, do you want fried onions on yours? Deb's the only woman on board. He's been a steward out here for eight years now. These are awesome this time. I'm gonna put them on my plate when you give it to me. She does all the cooking, orders supplies, does the laundry. It's like being 17 people's mommy. That's what I do. Here you go. Two down, 14 to go. (laughs) 
Not everybody comes in for lunch. Deb knows everyone's schedule. The engineers change at 11.30, so Chris will be coming in because he's going on watch. She also keeps track of who likes what. The captain, Kevin, and Mike don't like onions, but the captain likes the flavor of onions, just not the crunch. It's hard to please everybody, so sometimes she tells them they've got to suck it up. Sam, he doesn't eat any beef at all. So what, am I supposed to never cook beef? Deb's really careful when it comes to food allergies, though. If you have an allergic reaction to something and you're way out in the middle of the lake, what are you going to do? Out here, you really feel removed from the rest of the world. I mean, sure, you see land all the time. You're in and out of port every day. Yeah, but you're stuck at work. It's almost like you're in a floating prison. Loading, unloading, loading, unloading. You're working. You don't have time to get off the boat. And if you do get off... These places aren't exactly tourist destinations. I could get off here for a couple hours, I guess, but this place is, I think, what, 25 miles from the nearest store? No, there's no town. It's just, just freaking stone dock. Sure, it's a big boat, but it quickly becomes very small when it's your world for a month. You and your 16 co-workers. Unless you jump overboard, at the end of the day, the farthest point you can go away from when someone's 630 feet. And that's if that other person's standing at the opposite end of the boat. Tempers get hot sometimes. Oh, I've been pissed off so bad where I just want to beat people with, like, a pipe on the boat and just get off at the next dock. These guys have to learn how to cope. It's the only way they're going to make it at the end of the month. So instead of ripping each other's heads off, they pick on each other. A lot. Sam, tell you about his nickname? Okay. Yeah, he does. Apparently, <laughs> Sam thinks Kyle's been late to work too many times. Oh, okay. So they were talking about it in the wheelhouse, and I said... No, Sam brings it up. No, no I did not bring it, it up. Sam, they were already Sam talking about it, you moron. Now Kyle started calling him the bus driver to get back at him. We do all give each other a hard time, but... If we didn't pick on each yeah. other, it would mean we didn't care about each other. They may drive each other crazy sometimes, but they also help keep each other sane. That's right, Kyle. Come here, give me a hug. <laughs> let's, hug let's hug it out. We're in the middle of Lake Michigan, somewhere. We've got ten more hours of lake before we make the next dock. Full speed like this, the whole boat shakes. You can hear the dishes in the galley rattling. Ed just clocked off. He's sitting at the computer in the officer's galley. I'm losing my solitaire game and it sucks. He plays solitaire while he waits for his Facebook page to load. A lot less socializing on this ship compared to other ones I've been on. Everyone just kind of hides and goes to bed as soon as their shift is over. How does Ed pass the time? Sleep. And if you're done sleeping, Take some Tylenol PM and go back to sleep. <laughs> sleep makes time go by fast. Yeah, there's some days I'm in a good mood and I'm happy to be out here, and there's other days where this is the last place in the world I want to be, and all I can think about is, well, I've got how many more weeks to go. <laughs> We're pulling into Port Inland now, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. It's gray outside. The lake's gray. Sky's gray. In the stone dock ahead, sand swept up covering the buildings. It's the most desolate place I've ever seen in my life. Sam's the AB on deck, waiting to shift when these hatches are full. Man, it's only six o'clock. Right now, he's props up against the side of the boat. He's got his coffee in his thermos. 
yellow hard hat kind of cocked to the side on his head. Typical Port Inland load. Probably about the 87th time I've been here loading. <laughs> he's working towards his mate's license. So far he's put in almost a thousand days. It's quite a, that's one tenth of my life. Spent on a boat. My family thinks that they said I've changed, you know, since I've come out here. Like, I don't notice it, but maybe, maybe it does something to you. I don't know. It's 7 p.m. now. Time to call the watch. The shifts will rotate in about an hour, so Sam goes in to wake up the guys who'll come out for the next shift. Call you up. Okay. Ed, seven. Okay, what's your light on? Crew change list is up in the galley. Two days to go. And let me tell you, everybody's been counting down. Half the guys will get off when we get to Chicago. He's going to Cleveland. He's going to Toledo. Kyle has two more weeks before he goes home. It's November now. The season's coming to an end. By early January, the boat will be laid up for the winter. What's next for Kyle? Will he be out here next season? I asked Kyle where he sees himself in five years. Hopefully I won't be out here, but I guess that's what everyone out here says. Oh, I'm not going to be out here in five years. I'm not going to be doing this anymore. And then six years goes by and they're still out here. Some people say once you get the water in your blood, you can't get it out, but <laughs> I don't plan on being out here forever. Big Ship Diary was produced by Allison Swaim for Front and Center, a series about improving the quality of life in the Great Lakes region and around the country from WBEZ. Allison won the Best New Artist Award for this story at the 2012 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Have you heard of a ship called the Good Reuben James? You've been listening to Resound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. This episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Our intern is Annie Kostakis. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound is also provided by the Logan Theater in Chicago's Logan Square. This October, the Logan Theater presents their third annual horror movie, Madness. From Nightmare on Elm Street to Beetlejuice, the Logan celebrates the season with late-night showings and family matinees every weekend. There's more information at thelogantheater.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.